Hey, welcome to the Kavrusa podcast and another episode of the mailbag. This week's mailbag, we address questions about rabbis. Does having a rabbi reduce my own autonomy and decision making? Are some rabbis better than other rabbis? Can women be rabbis? Should I be asking my rabbi business decisions? Medical advice? Are rabbis looking for control? What is Das Torah? We analyze the three necessary qualities of a rabbi and how a healthy approach to having a mentor will lead to invaluable counsel, guidance, friendship, and autonomy. I'm Moshe Sharma, and thank you for joining me on this exploration of timeless ideas that have guided some of history's greatest men and women for over 3,000 years. Question that came in this week is on the whole concept of a rabbi. Why do you need a rabbi? What's the point? What exactly is the role of a rabbi in, a, in one's personal life? The Mishnah in Perkei Avu says, Asilah harav, each person, each person, every person, should have a rav, should have a rabbi. Now, what exactly does that mean? Does this mean that, just the questioner asked that they had heard a concept that you should ask everything, put it by a mentor, and what happens to your individual capacity for decision-making? Do you just absolve yourself from all decisions and just pin it on the rabbi? What's going on over here? That's the question. The answer, I believe, is in three dimensions, three aspects of what a rabbi is, or more particularly, how to select a rabbi. The rabbi should have these three qualifications. Number one, the word rabbi itself, rav, in Hebrew. Rav is expansive. It's wide. It's broad. Somebody that has a rav of knowledge, of wisdom, of experience. The more you know in Torah, then the more educated of an answer, more insightful, more more on point the answer is going to be. So that's qualification number one. The rav, the rabbi, has to be a rav in Torah, has to have broad, expansive knowledge of Torah, not only the Chumash, the written Torah and the stories of the Torah. But, first of all, in the Chumash itself, on all four levels of the Torah, in Peshat, the simple explanation, on the surface of it, the Drash, the expositions, the words, the the language, the syntax of the language, the commonalities between different verses, different words, different phrases, the deeper ideas when one word seems to be off. When a different word could have been used, the ability to not only detect that, but to be able to draw on a wide range of knowledge in order to understand the deeper message that the Torah has given out. Third level, the remez, the hints as to what's going on, the different letters of the Hebrew Hebrew alphabet, the aleph, the bet, the gimbal, the phonetics of the letter, the numerical position of the letter, all the deep meanings behind it, and then the Kabbalah, the Soda, on the, on the deepest level, the inner secrets of the Torah, the Pneumius, the heart of it, not just getting the revealed Torah, but the concealed Torah. So the more a person has knowledge in that, including the, the, the living Torah of it, so not only the Chumash and the four levels, but 
the Talmud, the entire Talmud, is replete and, and packed with Jewish insights, with halacha, Jewish law, the way of life, with ethics, with philosophy, the stories, and not only that, but throughout the generations. You have to know for 2,000, 3,000 years how Jewish communities, how people that were steeped in Torah knowledge that had incredible um, access and insight, how they understood it and how they interpreted it and how they applied it in every generation because the Torah's principles of life, because Hashem is not going to spell out every single situation, such as electricity in the desert. So it has to be reapplied, reapplied to every single generation. So a person, in order to render an halachic position, a Torah view on something, has to be seeped in knowledge that and knows for thousands of years in different responses and different writings of different rabbis and of the Shulchan Aruch, which is the coding of all uh, Jewish law based on the Rambam Maimonides and his 14 volume magnum opus, based on the Tor, based on Bali Tosfes, gathered together in Spain and France and Israel for thousands of years and how they understood it and how it was applied more recently throughout the centuries. So the more, that's condition number one, is to be a Rav, expansive knowledge. Someone that just has a piece of paper saying that they're Rav, but they don't know the first thing from the next in terms of the Mishnah or the Gemara or the Rishonim and the Rajba, the Rambam. The Rambam, the Rambam doesn't, doesn't even start to uh, detect an answer and have an opinion. And here's the thing, you, you don't need to be a rabbi in order to have solid advice and good opinions and very wise opinions. But those are just your opinions then. <laughs> the, the, the qualitative difference between a rabbi's opinion and a non-rabbi's opinion is that the rabbi's opinion is not his own opinion, but it's what Judaism's opinion is, what the Torah's opinion is. So if you want to have your own opinion, that's great. And then each person could could decide on their own and evaluate what is considered um, a smart opinion. Is this opinion to be reckoned with or not? Well, the first distinction of a Rav, somebody that has that broad anchoring in Torah, is that this is a Torah opinion and not just a personal opinion. Second quality that's needed is a Rav in Midos. Eraving character traits. Person that is steeped in character or refinement. Take, for example, some of the greatest rabbis that have lived. Moshe Feinstein lived in the 20th century in New York. His humility, his honesty. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who the smile on his face and the a person that epitomized truth that wouldn't say anything or do anything that could be vaguely taken as some sort of of dishonesty somebody of integrity person of integrity is what's needed you look at today some of these um the leading rabbis of our generation and look at what the difference between one of these premier rabbis take of Herschel Schachter, for example, New York. Take Reb Shmuel Kamenetsky in Philadelphia. And you look at them and compare them with some other 
let's say, non-rabbis that are thought leaders and, and thinkers, and you look at just the humility and the genuine integrity of, of what a person whose life accomplishments were versus somebody that could be saying good ideas, but could be a Tony Robbins-esque character that's loud and in your face and touting their accomplishments. It's the world of a difference. Now, why is this important? Why is this so necessary to be somebody of, of great integrity? Is because the questions that one should be asking to a rabbi are not questions simply of filling in a blank. Filling in a blank is when you don't know an answer to something. In Hebrew, we call this a shayla, she'ela. When you're asking to get a, a simple answer that you just don't have the knowledge for. Same way what, how Google operates, how many ounces are in a cup, or what happens if milk falls into a meat pot. Is a certain technology allowed on Shabbat or not? Those are yes or no questions. Fill in the blank. Either you know it or you don't know it. And you don't need to be a rabbi to answer that question. All you need to know is which information applies to this scenario. And as long as it's accurate, right, you don't want to just Google. The reason why you don't want to Google is because um, <laughs> Google, it, it's uh, not necessarily prioritizing truer information over less true. So you want to make sure it's coming from accurate source and not just someone in their basement writing uh, random musings. So you want to make sure it's accurate, but as long as it's accurate, then it's just filling in that information. So most uh, yeshiva students that are in their teenage years can answer 95% of questions that are asked, let's say, on campus about a halacha of Shabbat or Purim. Because you learn the halacha, you learn the knowledge, and then it's just the simple task of filling, of matching the question to the answer. That's a she'ela. That's each person could learn on their own. If you, if you, if you're in a pinch and the scenario is right now, uh, you need an answer right now. So then you ask Rabbi. But that's that's a very elementary, basic uh, level. That's not a real task of a Rabbi. The real task of a Rabbi is when something is not just missing information, but it's a kasha. Kasha is a higher level of a question. It's a question with a capital Q. Doesn't make sense. There's a clash of values here. On one hand. It seems to be within the within the the letter of the law is within halacha. It's it's technically permitted or it's technically doing the right thing, but in the spirit of it, it seems to be going against the spirit. So, a great example. This is on our podcast, the episode of the watered down kippah, where you had someone that was doing something that was technically within the legal jargon. It was the head covering because you used the water cover water bottle cover, or uh, the styrofoam bowl, the case of styrofoam bowl, where someone commented on the podcast afterwards that, you know, really what he could have done is if he would have taken his sleeve and he would have covered his head with his sleeve instead of with his hand, then that would have halakhically been a head covering. So here is where you need a rabbi that could come in and say, very nice that you accomplished the letter of the law. You got the technical details, but the Torah is concerned about moral shaping of your personality the reason why you're covering the head is for is for a reason and by using a bottle cover you're you're creating a a, a mockery of the entire concept and you can have this in, in so many areas of life and any any single one of the 
mitzvot or the Jewish customs, anything. You could make a complete mockery of it. You could take Purim and you could turn it into a Halloween-esque type of superficial joke. You could make Hanukkah into some Christianized version of a, of a holiday. You could take Passover and you could turn it into just a pastime. Right, which and all these things could be technically within the spirit within the letter of the law, the technical details, but you got to get the entire the heart of it, and that's what we do when when there's a, a clash between values. When on one end you have values of your family and your personal growth and your career, what do you do? What do you do in life when you have so many? Right, this is really the second point. The first point is when you have a technical um, thing that it's technically allowed, or the Torah doesn't. Talk about it per se. The Torah doesn't talk about overeating. Right? The Torah doesn't talk about overeating. Somebody that, I'd say, eats kosher all the life, but just fresses out and they don't stop. I mean, overindulge in, in eating. Is that a, a Torah value? Is it not? It's, you can't point to any source and any verse that says not to do it. But that's where someone that is able to understand the heart of Torah that they're they're seeped in the Torah outlook. Could be could could detect and apply the ashrut, the the yashar, the the straightness of what the Torah is trying to mold out of a person. And the second aspect is because we in our own lives have so many things that are clashing in so many different areas. Your average young adult wants to do what's best for his career, wants to do what's best for her future and her schooling, etc. On the other hand, you want to do what's best for your community. You want to be a part of your community and your family, your future family. You want to invest in that. You want to invest in your relationships. You want to invest in your ability to connect with other people and in your personal life and very much connected to relationships and the community and to your career in your personal life you want to be the best possible self you want to be work on your discipline you want to work on your character you want to work on your on your patience on your kindness on being a person of empathy of being a person that's mindful it's present in the moment so all these things require time and commitment so how do you allocate your time how do you know? Does, what should I do with the year after I graduate college? Should I go straight into the workforce? Should I go to grad school? Should I go backpacking around the world? Should I go into serious dating mode and just focus myself full time and trying to find the right person? Should I focus on myself, self growth, take the time before jumping into a 60 year career? Should I take the time to really work. On myself, take a couple of months, seriously introspect and reflect, take the opportunity to learn ideas and concepts about my identity and my Judaism that I never had the opportunity to really delve into as a serious adult with a mature lens and to really evaluate who I am, what are my values, what are my core beliefs, where am I headed in life, what do I want out of life. I don't just want success in my career. I don't just want to nice house and two cars and all the surface level goals but I want as myself I want to be happy how am I going to get to that happiness 
Maybe I should take the time to focus on questions like that. So what do I do? And that's where you need somebody that's worked on in Midos, a Robin Midos, a Robin character traits. You need somebody that's unbiased. Someone that doesn't have their own hangups about those issues that you're asking. Because if you're going to ask someone about these questions and the person themselves has biases and has struggles in that area, then the question itself is going to be viewed through a uh, subjective lens. So you want that objective answer. You want someone that's out of that scenario, that's able to see you coming, that's able to identify with the struggle, that's able to, that gets it, that understands you, and knows where you're coming from, but is able to give advice that is not based on their own biases. They're not coming and, and projecting their own insecurities on you, but they're giving you objective advice that's wise, that's timeless, that has worked in the past, you need that advice. That's why you need the first component too. That has to be a Torah opinion and not the person's own opinion. Because if it's their own opinion, then, okay, it's a nice opinion. But why that opinion over the next opinion that you read in a book somewhere? But it's a Torah opinion that for over 3,000 years has guided history's most successful men and women. And it's something that it's objective but personalized to you. Every person needs a selecha rav, says the Mishnah Perkyav, a selecha for you. You can't have the same rav as somebody else. It has to be someone that gets you, that gets your circumstance, that gets your situation. And it leads to the third element. The third element is that it has to be personal. It has to be that you know that this person loves you, that this person wants the best for you. That it's not a random number that you just call. Because that could work as a one-time-off thing. You have a question and you want advice and maybe it's something that puts you in a vulnerable light and you're shy about it, which as a, as a society, we have a lot of work to do on that vulnerability and destigmatizing vulnerability. Well, the vulnerability, this, this concept of being open and real and authentic. Ay, 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 the, the, today's uh, social media climate and, and the complete opposite of that. Even the ones that talk about, oh, look how vulnerable I am. It's in order to tap into this idea, oh, look how vulnerable I am. So I get more and more uh, superficial likes and follows. But either way, for another time, you want somebody that you know has your best interests in mind. That you know that second element is true. That they're not projecting their own wills and their own agendas and their own biases and wishes and things like that but they just want the best for you and that way it will become something that is so much more sustainable so much more impactful down the line because then you could get real advice a real friend and somebody that could be able to tell you something even though right now at the moment right now at the moment it might not be what you want to hear you might want to hear something else. You might want to hear an easier way. But when you know that this person really, really wants the best for you. And it's not motivated by external considerations. But genuinely cares for you. So then you can combine the first element. This is based on, this is a, a Torah opinion. This is Hashem's advice coming down um, through, through the Torah that's being applied. Number two, 
is that it's coming from a person that doesn't have agendas, doesn't have insecurities that's, that are being projected on you. And number three, of course, by the way, of course, every human still has personal feelings and still have um, their own ideas and their own thoughts and their own priorities and their own way of doing things. Each person in the world is different, like the Talmud and Sanhedrin says. So we're all different fingerprints, different faces. Everybody's got a different way of viewing the world. But you need somebody that's able to acknowledge that and put that to the side and say, this is what my personal opinion on the matter is. But this is what the Torah's opinion is. I'm just going to tell you now the Torah opinion. And if you want, I can tell you as a friend what I think. But as the Torah opinion and the, the, the ideal in the situation is the following. This is how I operate in my, in my own life or I try to aspire to such a model where I might have something where I don't understand this certain aspect, why the Torah says this. Right? But I know that this is the Torah's opinion on it. I might have my own views on it and my own, my own opinions about it. And I could say that, well, this is what the Torah says. And therefore, yes, this is my own opinion. But if you want a, <laughs> an objective Torah opinion, then that's the opinion. Um, this could come up on, on more contemporary ethical issues where you know, you're, you're unsure about matrilineal descent and the how we go about that in, in modern day world, etc. So to sum up, what type of questions should you ask a rabbi? Questions of medical advice. Should I go for this operation? Should I go for this procedure, etc.? Those questions should be directed towards the best medical professional in that area. So if it happens to be a rabbi doctor, say uh, Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, who unfortunately just passed away a couple of weeks ago, is a world-class doctor, also happens to be a rabbi, then, then sure. But the point is, you go for the most medical of, of sources, uh, the most knowledgeable of sources. The only time you would bring in a purely rabbinical perspective is when the two different options on the table are, it's not necessarily one is more medical than the next, um, but it, it becomes an ethical question, such as, you know, if you do this operation, it has 20% chance of success. If you do this one, it has 80% chance of success, but it will only minimize the, uh, the illness and won't actually eradicate it. Uh, so, it has more of a chance of success, but it has less of a long-term effect or something that has less of an effect, a higher risk. But if it works out, then it will completely eradicate the illness and allow the person to live for a longer amount of time. So something like that is a core ethical issue where you have a clash here of values where you want someone that will be able to, with a broad set of knowledge and with an entire scope of literature for 2,000 years of similar pre precedents at different situations and what would be the most ethical thing to do in that situation 
uh, to be able to get an insight like that is invaluable. Uh, but in general, medical questions should be asked to doctors. A great illustration of such a question is in one of the responses of Rabbi Feinstein, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who wrote, now we have eight volumes collected, printed of his answers to some super intricate and deep questions. And just from the, the sheer brilliance of his responses and the breadth of his knowledge and the depth of his knowledge, it's it's awe-inspiring. It makes you want to just learn more Torah and become a better person. That's awesome. So this particular question is asked, we're a mother who's, who uh, has Siamese twins is asking the question. And the chance of survival, if both of them are not operated on and they keep them together, the chances of survival are super low. Now they could try to take the heart from one of the twins and transplant it into the other one. Or it's not really transplanting it. I guess it's as you're doing the surgery, um, you're leaving one of them without the heart. Um, so it would, by default, um, not allowing the second child to survive, uh, but it greatly increases the chance for at least the first child to survive. Or do you say, no, we try to get both of them um, to survive because, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to make that choice right now that won't allow the second one to survive. What do you do in such a scenario? So that's a question that you want to ask a rabbi because the doctors could tell you the what, they could tell you the statistics, the likelihoods, the data, but you have to make that decision and it comes down. That's a very moral uh, decision that you want guidance of thousands of years of, of legacy um, to give you some clarity. Otherwise, I, I can't imagine, but to just consider the, the doubt and the, the anxiety um, that a person might have to live with in the ramifications of such a decision. Um, and again, the, the, the Torah outlook on this doesn't guarantee success. And just because you go for one medical treatment over the other, um, because the likely of the chances, the way it's weighed all the different precedents and the different case points previously mentioned throughout uh, the ages and the Talmud and the commentaries, etc., doesn't guarantee that you'll have a happy life from here on in, but it gives you the knowledge that everything that you're operating in is being done with the highest form of ethical decisions and of moral decisions, and you have to do your best. And as Rabbi Tarfon says in Mishnah Perkyavas, Lo it's not up to you to create perfection. We as humans, we're not going to be happy by thinking we have to be the ones to make everything happen the way we think. But you're not free to be exempt from it. You can't just, well, okay, well, if I can never be perfectly happy, if I can't be a perfect person, so I might as well not even try. No, we have to do our best. You do your best shot. Um, and life has its ups and downs. And, there's an entire skill set of being able to navigate the ups, the downs, being mindful in, in the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. 
of being able to use each moment to understand that there's a reason why you're there and to, to figure out a, a path to enter that moment and to utilize the moment and to live it and to just be there. And that's the, the goal in general with, with life, with Torah lifestyle. It's not that it's a overnight follow these life hacks and you'll never have uh, another moment of struggle, but it's within the struggle. Within the struggle is exactly where humanity is found. That's exactly where you are you. And you could just be you. Business questions should be asked to business professionals. If you want to know whether or not you should start a company, the first address should be to someone that has experienced starting companies, that has uh, business acumen and business success. Now, perhaps your rabbi happens to be uh, successful at business and is someone that you could trust that will have a, a cool opinion. So then, for sure, then why not? But most rabbis aren't the most successful business people. So therefore, uh, probably best to find someone that has good business acumen. And Even then, if you find a rabbi that happens to be very good at business, then you're asking an opinion and not the Torah opinion on the matter. Now, where Torah opinion would pertain to business and very much does, and this is actually one of the first questions that a person is brought to account to in the world to come, in the world of truth, the next world after a person leaves this world, is were you ethical in business? The sus of an asata bemuna. Were your business dealings done ethically? This is a misunderstanding. Kol ma'odacha with all your resources. A person has to be honest and ethical. So an ethical decision in business where it's not illegal per se, but it's a gray area. What's the right thing to do? Is this type of business the type that a moral person should be involved in? Or is this business practice the type that a moral person should do? Right. So that's a question where you want a moral ethical perspective on. That's where you want to know what would the Torah outlook on such a profession be, such a practice be. In, in your personal life, where to live, etc. What communities to raise your children? What will be the best for you in different circumstances? Do I want to go to a, a community that's larger, that's smaller, a middle of the pack, I'm ahead of the pack? What type of lifestyle do I want to live? Questions that don't necessarily have a clear cut yes or no question that have many different potential outcomes um, is where um, in, in your personal life as to where you should really focus the bulk of your time on which which uh, aspects of your priorities how to figure out what your priorities are how to match up your life goals with your personal life experience and your characters and your strengths your flaws that is uh the question that you don't want to answer on your own because you know that you're biased and it was up to you. You're take the easy way. Yeah, I mean, I know for myself. And I'm sure you, the Chavrusa, listeners of the Chavrusa are, are um, higher higher than this. But uh, for me, I know that if it was up to me. I would probably just take the, the easier way out and I'll justify it afterwards. Because in Hebrew, Mora Heter, you'll teach yourself why this was really the right way to do. And you'll convince yourself afterwards. Well, it's really better to just uh, sleep in for another hour. You'll have more energy. You'll do that, right? You'll have all these uh, scenarios figured out in your head why it's better. So 
that's what you want to do. Uh, have a unbiased opinion that's coming from a uh, Torah source that is coming from someone that cares for you and loves you. And that's, uh, that's gold. One more thing. Even then, even then, rabbi shouldn't necessarily be telling you what to do. Right? You still need your autonomy. You're not going for direction. You're not saying, well, Rabbi, if you were me, if you were in my space, what would you do then? Right, give me that advice. What would you do then? I remember I did this once. Uh, I was talking to a mentor of mine, and I said, well, if you were in my space, and it was, it was confusing. There were two options. It wasn't black or white. It wasn't a shayla of yes or no, filling in the information. It was two different ways, and you're not sure which way is better, and they all have pros and cons, etc. Like, if you were me, what would you do? And he said to me, listen, <laughs> you got this wrong. That's not what That's not what this is about. That's not what's going to happen. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to make the decision for you. you got to make the decision. I'm here. I could serve as a, as a board to run things by, to point out things that you might be missing, that throughout uh, an objective lens and throughout life experience, you're able to see things that the person, when they're stuck in the tunnel, when they're right here and they're in the decision itself, you can't necessarily see the outcomes. This is very valuable in terms of what we call wisdom. In Hebrew, chachma, said perkeavos, ezu chacham, who's a chacham, who's wise, haroa esanola, someone that could see what's born, someone that could see the bigger picture, the future ramifications. Because right now, you might think this is a very good decision. You might think, you know, right now, this is a good policy based on the statistics that we have now. We should do X, Y, and Z as a society, as a community. We should close this. We should open that. All right, you might say, according to what we have right now, this is what we go with. A chacham, a wise person, is able to see not just what works right now, but what are the ramifications? What are the side effects that are going to happen? All right, if you shut down this, what's the effect that it's going to have on this community or that family or these subset, these children, etc. You want to have someone that has the, the chacham, that could see the nola, that could see the future. And sometimes when you yourself are involved in a decision and you're not sure, do I, grad school, work, career, life, ah. you want someone that could see the different effects, that not just what's going to be now for the next six months, but what's going to be in 50 years from now. The effect of the decision and the long-lasting ramifications. Yet ultimately, it comes down to you. You're going to be one of the making the decisions. That's the the greatest leader. The greatest Rob is the one that can create leaders, not followers. Create leaders. That you're the one that ends up taking that decision. And then at the end of the day, even better is that you don't even realize that it was your Rob. I think in my life, when I had such wise guidance and counsel from my rabbis, I think looking back, the genius in that was always that I felt that I was the one making the decision. And it wasn't, uh, yeah, yeah, I was talking to them over throwing ideas by them, but it was always me. You don't even realize that they're, how much they're influencing because they're able to take that objective the humility, the step out and, and give you that space to grow into your own. And sometimes you make the mistakes because sometimes you think I'm even smarter. And because a proper rabbi is not going to tell you do this, but they'll say, you know, these are the pros and cons. And look at this area. This has a lot more pros than that. And you think, oh, well, 
I'm smarter. And you learn from your mistakes, perhaps. Or perhaps you are smarter and it ends up working out. But the point is, is that the autonomy is always you. The individualism is, is there and it's needed and it's necessary. And we shouldn't be, you know, don't ask the rabbi for diet advice. <laughs> ask the nutritionist. Don't ask your rabbi for, uh, unless they happen to be both. But it shouldn't be coming, don't appeal to the rabbinic aspect in order to feel like you could take the weight off decision making and push it onto somebody else because that's at the very core of who we are is those decisions that we make those those hard decisions and it's all going to be you when you make that decision that's you now as a word of advice of course you want what the mission perky office is saying before you make those core decisions don't, don't go in blind you don't go into the Super Bowl without having prepared for two weeks in advance. And what you're preparing for is if the defense does this, then do that. And you have a coach that's able to see the, the larger picture and they study the films and they've played in Super Bowls before and they've watched the films from previous Super Bowls and they're able to see, well, if the defense lines up like this and they line up like that, you're able to jump in, make the pick, etc. That's the, the general goal. You're going to be the one playing in the Super Bowl. This is you. Coach isn't playing. The rabbi's not playing. Your mentor is not playing in the ball. That's you. But you want to make sure that you come in well prepared, well guided, well coached, and primed for success. To clarify, I've been using rabbi. It's the English rendition of of Rav. Um, but it could be Rebetzin. Rebetzin is the feminized version of Rav. Rebetzin. A female leader, where as long as you have those three elements, that she's well-versed in broad knowledge of Torah, not just of written Torah, but of oral Torah, of lived Torah for thousands of generations and how it manifests. Number two is that she's a worked on person of character, of integrity, person of integrity. It's so crucial, so crucial. Number three is that she cares about you and wants the best for you. If that's the case, she's modeling after Devorah. Devorah is one of the greatest biblical figures in the book of Shoftim. Now, to this point, Shofet is very often translated as judge. It's a judge. But if you look at the book of Shoftim, the book of quote-unquote judges, you'll see it makes zero sense to be a judge. If the narrow definition of judge is accurate, the whole story of Devorah wouldn't make sense. Nothing in the narrative indicates that she ever judged people. She wasn't a judge. What we see is her devotion to her people, her political authority. Right, less than a less than a judge. Right, she she uh, composed the song Shiras Devorah on the battlefield after defeating um, Sisera, 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 Sisera. Um, so that's what she is more than more than a judge. She's a leader. She's a teacher. She's a friend to her people. People came to her not for her judgment, but for her leadership, for her guidance, for her counsel, for her advice. And that's the the entire book of Judges, the book of Shoftim. It's not of judges, but it's the book of leaders. It, you're embracing the whole gamut of of human relationships. That's what a Shofet is. Um, you look back in in the parshas of Yisro of Jethro. Moshe's father-in-law, who suggests to Moshe that he should go down and be lishbot as a am. 
just sit down and be shofetam to judge the people. Now, what are they judging about? What, what's he judging them? What's most of judging for forty years in the desert? Judging what the, the people are small claims court back and forth all day. They're just suing each other. Was he judging? No, he's giving them advice. You have to realize the Jewish people at the time. They needed, they needed guidance. They needed leadership, not civil cases. Because think about it, they were classless in the desert. Everybody was equal. That was the uh, the most egalitarian society that was there. All the physical needs were satisfied equally. They had the mana, all food. Everybody had the same amount of food. There were very few civil cases, but there were so many human tragedies. The people there had been in slavery for hundreds of years, suffering from ridicule, from humiliation. They were tortured. Wives dishonored, children snatched from their arms and brutally murdered. And now suddenly they're liberated. They find themselves free and independent. But can you imagine the nightmares that pursued them? Waking up at night in cold sweat with their memories, the knocks on the doors and what that blood chilling scenes that con must have conjured. They were The people were dislocated. They were mentally dislocated. They were confused. They were frightened. They didn't need a judge. They needed a judge. They needed somebody to lead, to teach. Somebody to confide in. And they clung to Moshe because that's what they wanted to be in his company. His mere presence was inspiring to them. He was calm. He was words of wisdom. He was able to help them drive away the ghosts of their past. And his words of comfort, his words of solace, his words of, of guidance were able to, to heal their pent-up emotions and fuse them with hope and faith. And that's what Jethro notices. Most father he sees people are standing from morning to night waiting in line to talk to Moshe. Now all talking about judgments. But they're there because they loved him. They were fascinated by him. They couldn't be separated. It wasn't a ceremonial thing that they, oh they stood by to go talk to the rabbi. But it was spontaneous. It was natural. It was instinctual. They wanted to talk to him. They were attaching. That's what you're looking for. That's what a shofet is. That's what a leader is. That's what devorah was. And that's what the ideal of the Mishnah is to look for a leader like that. And was, one more thing. It was, it was reciprocal. Moshe had the same view of them. He didn't view himself as a, as a leader, as a title. Give me a title. I went to rabbinical school. I want my rabbi. I want my title. Call me by my title. Make sure you, you give me the honor. I'm standing over you. I'm lording over you. You're subordinate to me. That's what Jethro looked, and that's what he th he thought. And he asked Moshe, "Why are you st standing over the people the, the the entire day? The people are standing here, making them stand in front of you." He misinterpreted what he saw. He realized that Moshe loved his people. He didn't understand the Jewish concept of leadership because he was coming from Midian. He was the the priest in Midian, where it's all all on the surface, the giving the honor, the person power. A hierarchy of power. He was at the top of that. And he sees Moshe. He's like, oh, I thought you were different. Why are all these people coming to you? Why are they all needing you? Are you, you need to maintain your control over them? And you see this today, people will mock and scorn. Like, oh, your rabbis need control. They need this. That's why, you know, so, so many people come to them for guidance. They, they need the rabbi's control and permission. They're misunderstanding. You're missing, you're like Jethro. You have to realize that Moshe loves his people. He breathed and died for his people. He would never treat a person with disdain. They didn't stand there in acts of subservience when people are standing and waiting online to talk to the rabbi. They're not being subordinate. 
but they just want to be close to their teacher. They want to be close to their mentor. Not not a ruler. Not a ruler. It's a teacher, a friend, a leader. She's a teacher, a friend, a leader. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Harusa, the mailbag edition, where we address questions asked throughout the week. Please send in any questions for future episodes of the mailbag. My number is 347-893-4467 or you can email Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Wishing you a wonderful day. Overflowing with goodness and happiness. <laughs>